0: Everyone and welcome to the Groundswell podcast. Today, I'm so excited to be here with our CEO Michelle Moore. Um, Michelle Moore is the CEO of Groundswell and author of Rural Renaissance: Revitalizing America's Hometowns Through Clean Power. She also serves as a state confirmed member of the Tennessee Valley Authority Board of Directors and as secretary of the board for the Interdenominational Theological Center. Her work is rooted in her faith and the commandment to love thy neighbor as yourself.
1: Michelle, thank you so much for being here today. It's lovely to be here with you today, Nora, and everybody who may be listening in.
0: I think we just want to start off with a little bit of background. So could you tell us um, where did you grow up and how did this affect who you become?
1: I grew up in LaGrange, Georgia, uh, which is a a small town in West Georgia, right on the Georgia-Alabama line. And my family on both sides is, it lived in that West Georgia, East Alabama area for a really long time. My grandparents all worked in the cotton mills. Um, their parents were farmers and preachers and sharecroppers. And the values that I gained from them and, and, and also just the, the care that I gained from watching their lives has fundamentally shaped me. You know, not only as I've, as I've matured, um, and married and, and built my own family. Um, but also in how I think about the world around me and my responsibility to give back and really, I mean, even from your introduction, how I can reflect that idea of loving your neighbor as yourself through what I do, um, through, through my work and, and how that can really build into my community and, and build into a sense of, you know, leaving this place a little bit better than when we found it.
0: Absolutely, and you can definitely see the faith through your work and how the values kind of shape the direction of Groundswell and how we infuse our values into our work. And this has been a great year for Groundswell, just reflecting back on all that we've accomplished this year from innovative research publications, Community Solar and Resilience Hub development milestones, and our very first rural Renaissance Roadshow. There's a lot to celebrate and be grateful for. What are your personal highlights from this year?
1: I was thinking about that even on the drive up to D.C. this morning, because um, the Christmas season and, and moving into a new year, it is a time for anticipation, and it's also a time for joy and celebration. And as you said, Nora, there's just so many ways in which we've been so blessed and so much to be grateful for and so much to celebrate. And I'm really excited about celebrating with our team, our staff team, a little bit later today and, and with our community partners too, because you know Brother Mike's gonna be coming down. Oh, I that's <laughs> <laughs> so Brother Mike's gonna be here with from Empowerment Temple. But um, you know, one of the things that I'm most grateful for this year is how we've really been able to build into our team. You know, even as we roll into the end of the year here, we're going to be welcoming two new team members to Groundswell a director of um, new partnership development and a director of project and organizational finance. Because as we build our impact and, and really live into our mission of building community power, um, you need more workers for the good work. And I'm grateful that we've been able to continue to bring really values-aligned people who all share that core um, appreciation of joyful service uh, to to what we do. I'm grateful for so many things. You know, another highlight for me has been um, celebrating City of Refuge as the very first community-owned project that will deliver thanks to the direct pay in the IRA. You know, I'd love that this change means that the community partners, the churches, the community-based nonprofits, the municipalities that we work with can now own their own stuff, you know, instead of having to essentially pay rent um, just because that's the way the tax code is written. And I I love that change and I love their innovation there. And, you know, coming from small town and, and rural South where energy burdens are among the highest in the country, you know, along the lines of 20, 30, in some places, even 40% for low income families living in rural areas. I'm so grateful that we were able to um, build a team and a coalition. And what I think is just a really beautiful strategy around Southeast rural power, solar for all. And I pray that you know next year, this time we'll be celebrating joyfully having kicked off a program that could cut bills in half for almost 30,000 families across the region. So, um, and that's really just the tip of the iceberg. We'd we'll be sitting here until New Year's uh, to, to talk through everything. Yeah, definitely. This is just the beginning. And
0: like, as you said, there's so much to be thankful for, um, especially really excited for the opportunity to expand into the rural Southeast. And that just brings me um, to your book, Rural Renaissance, In the book, you provide five pathways to clean power in rural America and the strategies to achieve them. Um, Those include energy efficiency, renewable power, resilience, including microgrids and battery storage, the electrification of transportation, and finally, broadband internet. Um, Which of these pathways do you think faces the greatest challenge
1: in implementation? And how do we address that? Well, I think that they... You know, they, they all have different challenges. I think that there are two that really stand out to me. Mm-hmm. You know, one is just a challenge around capacity. You know, and capacity is just a fancy way for saying, you know, having enough hands to do the work. Right. And in many rural communities, not most rural communities, um, because of the lack of jobs, you know, there's just been this spiral of out migration for many decades. Mm-hmm. And so even if you loved your hometown, you wanted to stay in your hometown, it's hard to stay in your hometown um, to be able to get a job where you'd be able to raise a family and, and be relatively assured that your kids would be able to have a little bit better life than you would. But what that means is that many of these, um, you know, the under-resourced rural communities serving you know, disadvantaged, low, in, low and moderate income communities, like the institutions that support those communities are just as inst- are just as under-resourced as the people in the communities are, you know, so you don't have the people, you don't have the workers, you need to have great people, but just not enough of them, Mm -hmm. or not enough resources to be able to pay people a proper salary, you know, to to be able to do the work, and that lack of capacity, you know, the the lack of enough hands to do the work and enough money to pay those hands, um, right now makes it hard to even implement energy efficiency. Because you know you don't have the technical capacity to build the program, mm-hmm. um, you don't have the grant writers to write the applications for the federal funding. You don't have the licensed, trained, and insured contractors to go out and do work. You know, so it gets to be a bit of a spiral. So addressing that need for capacity, you know, for for hands to do the good work and support, you know, for those hands as they get rolling is really key. And there's another challenge that's really emerged to clean energy deployment, you know, even solar energy storage that in many ways I see breaking along a traditional rural urban divide line where when we look even at the history of power in America, the history of so many things, you know, since since industrialization, you know, there's been an economic practice, a bad habit of extracting value from rural communities and exporting that value to cities. You know, as um, America urbanized, the wealth moved as well. And that impacts everybody. And in some places and in some communities, some of those patterns have been recurring around clean energy development, you know, where you need rural land, some hundreds, thousands of acres at the time to build solar farms which are good right solar farms mm-hmm. are, are good for everybody but what if those solar farms are powering urban areas or powering big companies in urban areas and not sharing any of the savings with the rural community where the project is located right. yeah. you know or what if projects are being developed without consultation with the community about land use Mm-hmm. Um, in some areas it's not so much that, you know, solar is gonna take over or rural America, but more that there's just been such an erosion of rural land for urbanization generally, that there's a lot of sensitivity because people's way of life is changing. And so really using this energy transition as an opportunity to build a more equitable energy future, definitely from the perspective of uh, individuals and families and people who've been left out, marginalized, disadvantaged, um, you know, specifically cut out and kept down, mm-hmm. you know, just because of who they are, what they look like, um, is a critically important aspect of our future. And seeing that through a rural and urban lens too, and to make sure that as we're building this clean energy future, that we're eliminating all the extractive. Pr- From how we work and really getting to an economy that, I mean, at the end of the day, it's just about loving people, right? Mm -hmm. Do we have an economy that loves and serves people, or do we have people that serve, you know, this thing called an economy? I think it's the economy supposed to serve people, you know, and we just got to put some thought into building systems that do that too.
0: I agree. And, you know, echoing a lot of those sentiments, it really makes me think back to the Royal Renaissance Roadshow and just the spirit of gathering together and strategizing and making sure that those rural voices are at the forefront as we create an equitable, just, and like restorative, I'm sorry, um, energy transition. You know, thinking about that, when planning the Rural Renaissance Roadshow, and I feel very honored to be a part of planning that amazing event, um, one of our goals was definitely for the roadshow to feel like a campfire that people want to return to. And though we spent a lot of time learning and panels and sessions, it was also exciting to have an opportunity to gather together, strategize, and network. So, how do we continue this spirit of connection
1: in the next Roadshow? That is a great question. And I have to say, Nora, I'm super excited that you're going to be part of answering that too. Um, I think part of it is um, importantly about listening. And uh, one of the things that really stood out to me in hallway conversations and even in my own feelings about being there is that we made time, you know, for for people to connect and build relationships and really, you know, dig into the nitty gritty of getting stuff done. I don't know how many times I've been to conferences, fall well, well-intended, right? Mm-hmm. We, we want to honor the people that do the work and honor the intention, But you just get talked at. You get talked at for an hour and a half, and then you have like five minutes to go to the bathroom, get a coffee, and get the next thing. And you don't have that time to build durable relationships. And I want us to be able to find ways in the interim, ways until next year to really connect and build relationships, listen to what people have to share and what people want to hear from others, and use tools like podcasts. Um, you know, tools like webinars, um, tools like informal meetups where people may be gathering otherwise to make those connections. But my thought for next year is that we would gather in early November and um, celebrate together as a Friendsgiving. Oh, I love that. So um, there's so much to be grateful for. I think that also focusing on gratitude really shifts our thinking and shifts our spirit as well. Mm -hmm. And this time next year, however... The pro- however, uh, the, the programs are implemented, we'll all be in the midst of implementing solar for all programs and um, getting together, celebrating, sharing gratitude, and really digging in and talking about how we can share from that abundance. I think it'll be a, a beautiful way for us to honor how we got started with year two.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think about how far we've come this year it just excites me to think about all of the lessons learned we'll have for November, all that we'll have to be thankful for, and just kind of taking those strategy and taking what we learned from those panels and those workshops and just the connections that we made at the first Roadshow and just doing it even better the next time. (laughs) As we look into this new year, there will be a time for expansion and and growth for Groundswell. What priorities are at the forefront of our ever-evolving
1: strategy and mission for building community Well, this is a big year for us because we're updating our strategic plan. Mm -hmm. And even as we gather here together this week, we'll be affirming a direction and and taking feedback and ideas from our board and having a new strategic plan that we'll be able to share by the end of January of next year. So that's incredibly exciting. And taking that moment to reflect and learn from what has worked uh, from, from what's just been like really hard or maybe hasn't really worked, and and building that into the next phase, I think, is critically important. You know, we are in a in a time now where for our our field, you know, working in energy uh, equity and justice, and also our industry and the energy industry in the U.S. and globally, and utilities and you know, transportation is a part of that now. All the things. That not only are we in a time of great transition, but we're also in a time in which the market is really reorienting itself around many of the great policies in the Inflation Reduction Act, mm-hmm. whether we're talking about the changes in tax credits, the opportunity for direct pay and community ownership, um, you know, the emphasis on making sure that everybody in every state, you know, has access to to um, clean energy programs that are that are aligned with their needs and you know aligned with their market structures, aligned with what they have abundance of and in, and aligned with what they may lack, you know, and, and need to fulfill. And um, you know that, you know that that time of transition, that time of opportunity and, and reorientation, also takes patience, right? Because mm-hmm. you're going to be building into the next year like everybody. You know, and we're also going to be building and waiting, mm-hmm. right? Waiting for the next IRS policy to roll out. You know, mm-hmm. waiting for the next application process to be finalized. Waiting for applications to be approved. Um, and I think that for Groundswell and, and for all of us, a priority will be um, that patiently waiting for good while you're where you're building an expectation of the good right. work to come. you know and, and what's that balance and uh, and how do we take care you know of ourselves and, and take care of each other in that process? and uh, keeping you know always at the as our North star, you know that idea of community power does community power look like? Community power mm-hmm. looks like community resilience. it looks like sharing. it looks like community ownership. Um, it looks like, putting the least first, you know, putting the people who have the greatest needs first in what we do. And we'll have opportunities, I believe, this next year to really um, understand that in in different ways.
0: Yeah. Um, Just just hearing you speak about that, it kind of just makes me think of an analogy of the time period that we are right now for Groundswell. It kind of feels like or sowing the seeds, you know, with the fruitful abundance of the policy um, implementation that is kind of shifting towards the market that we're moving towards. So, kind of just, you know, sowing those seeds, getting everything ready, you know, as we start to move in a different direction, just growing in that abundance and just setting everything up with the community at the forefront.
1: Crystal, our colleague, you mm-hmm. know, Virg- Crystal Virgil has shared that same analogy many times. I think for, um, for. For us, it is that uh, a a beautiful way to think about the work is gardening. Mm -hmm. You know, you're you're doing the works for growing and flourishing and for the future. Mm -hmm. Um, But we're also moving into that harvest season. Mm -hmm. You know, a harvest of the seeds that we've sown, a harvest of the good work and the love that we put into our community and, and into our work. And I believe a harvest for our whole field. You know, there's so many countervailing winds, you know, out in the, um, out in the public sphere. And I know that um, particularly when you're doing good work, um, sometimes that good work can be energizing or sometimes you can, you know, read the news in the morning and kind of start your day at a deficit. Yeah. And I believe for, for me, something that I stay focused on personally is just that gratitude for what's good. You know, and um, the good that will come from sowing those seeds and the good will come from the harvest, whether it's us harvesting, you know, Mm -hmm. or whether it's our colleagues, whether it's, you know, other organizations that we share approaches to community resilience with, Mm -hmm. you know, who are informed or inspired to go do something. I mean, there is such extraordinary good that can come from these times. Mm -hmm. Um, There's there's no end of, of good work to do to see that future come forward. Yes, the win for them is the win for us, and vice versa.
0: Amen. Going back to that, with all of our projects, community centered input and solutions are paramount. How do we continue to engage with rural communities specifically, building trust and ensuring that their voices are at the forefront?
1: So, there are two things that we do that I think are good practices to highlight. I mean, that it's, um, it, as you share, keeping people at the center, keeping communities at the center of the work is who we are. that's fundamentally to our mission, our identity, our values. But how do you translate that into practices? I think um, in many cases, if you're working in urban areas, you have community leaders, but you also have organizations that are professionalized, where you have full-time paid people, you know, who are advocates for XYZ organization that represents the community. In under-resourced communities, including rural communities, you don't have nonprofit infrastructure, period. Mm -hmm. And um, so direct representation, finding ways for direct representation and representation where we're also valuing people's time, you know, contributing to the whole is something that Groundswell does. Mm -hmm. And one practice is that we hire from the communities that we serve. So as we um, build into next year and as we look at how we grow our team, we'll be continuing to focus on hiring people from the places who directly represent the communities that we're seeking to serve through Groundswell and uh, that makes groundswell better, and it's also a way we practice what we preach. Another practice that we have is community advisory councils. You know, as we discussed in a lot of places that we serve, there's no nonprofit infrastructure. You know, there's no community-based organization to go to and say, hey, what about this? You know, as you're going in and partnering, we're coming in and and helping to create that infrastructure. So we stand up community advisory councils where people who serve or compensated with stipends um, that value their time. And we create those community advisory councils with closed feedback loops. So we're not just asking questions and listening. We're then reporting back to people on how we implemented their direction and asking them how we did and keeping those relationships you know, in place and full circle as we move forward in our programming. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing that advisory council structure proliferating across all of our programs and all the geographies and all the geographies we serve.
0: Absolutely, I think the advisory council is a huge part of the work we do, and it's so crucial to get um, not only the input from the community but have community. Um, leaders as representatives to get the word out. And I think a large part of that is the flow of resources. And it's so interesting because I was just talking to Chrissy today and she was kind of reporting back on how the last advisory council committee went. And one of um, Rita, one of the members, she was speaking about how she went on our YouTube and watched. All of the rural Renaissance keynotes. So I think just being so transparent and having those resources open for them to go and then advocate as a trusted community member from what they've learned and also just um, think about the community resource guide and having that flow of resources to allow community members to empower themselves and just you know to continue to update that.
1: I think you said a really important word there too that's transparency because when we're talking about community-centered governance We're talking about transparency for what we do, including transparency around resources. Um, It's really about good governance, right? It's not rocket science. It's good governance. And thinking about, particularly for community serving organizations, for nonprofits who exist for the public good, making sure the public has a voice in your governance is just the right thing to do.
0: Absolutely. So, what have been your key takeaways and learning experiences from this year? I know you've touched on a few, but anything else that really stands out to you?
1: Let's see. I, I think, gosh, this year has been so—it's been abundant in learning stuff too. <laughs> um, I, I think that the a headline for me from this year, a headline learning, is just, and I'm going to stay with the harvest metaphor too. You know, the, the fields are ripe. And I remember in 2009 when I was serving the Obama administration and we had all kinds of ideas about solar and energy efficiency, and good green jobs. And, um, and they were good ideas, but the maybe the fields weren't ripe yet. You know, the, the market wasn't as mature. There wasn't as much manufacturing capacity to build the stuff that you needed to build the thing. You know, there wasn't as much a legal and contractual infrastructure out there to know how to do a transaction. There just wasn't as much shared knowledge. And today similar conversations are very different because there's a shared like level set of knowledge about energy and how it impacts our lives and how important it is to our future. And in some ways, maybe a, a more, Consistent shared idea about the future. Clearly, not not everybody agrees about everything. We, we we see that unfold in the news every day. But people have ideas about the the energy future that they want, and so that opportunity to engage is very very different. And you know, when you're going and having a conversation about how can we serve, how can Groundswell serve, even even when you're going into communities that may not have any programs, may not have any existing nonprofit infrastructure. People understand the concepts and they know what they want. And it just creates a very different moment of opportunity uh, to be able to expand our impact, uh, to expand our service to others, and expand the opportunities that we have for partnerships with others who are doing similar work in the same spirit. So headline, learning for the year, keeping with the harvest metaphor, you know, that the fields are ripe.
0: The fields are ripe, and there's so much to look forward to in the future. At the Rural Renaissance Roadshow, Dr. Diane Dillon-Ridgeley stated that this will be the century for justice. Uh, what does centering justice look like for you and for our organization?
1: Centering justice is about centering people and you know, thinking about what's just not only in the moment but also how can doing justice now, which, you know, for me and my faith is another part of that faith command, that you, you neighbors, yourself, you do justice. Um, but thinking about what historical wrongs can be righted in our generation. And I see that as a privilege, you know, to live at a time when we have the opportunity to, to do better, not only in the moment and how we're treating people and how we're engaging in decision-making with things that are the now, and um, I think that for, for all of us and whatever our work is, whether it's in energy justice, climate justice, economic justice, to really deeply inquire about the values that got us here. You know, what are the values that got us here? What's the story, what's the journey been so that for our contribution and our generation, we can unpick the wrongs and do what's right and we won't be perfect because we're not perfect beings you know we, we aren't omniscient. You know, we don't have all the knowledge and we don't have all the insight but we can do better and then build a better prat- platform and build a better future for the next generation will then be smarter than us And do even better
0: now. You know, going to what you said, I just think it's so important to look back as we go forward. And I'm really excited um, for this opportunity for Groundswell to to continue to grow. And I thank you for your leadership and your innovation for this organization. And just personally, all that you have taught me. So it's been an honor. And thank you so much for taking some time today to chat
1: with me and whoever may be listening. Oh, thank you so much, Nora. And I'm really honored to work alongside you too. Because we're here together now, you know, Groundswell. But you're going to be here after I'm gone. And so you're that future generation that's going to do better than what my generation's done. So thank you. Of course. You're teaching me well. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you.